As we uh, enter into the message today, we do so with a desire to celebrate the fact that we worship God uh, out of that desire to glorify and honor him here in our church, in our homes, and in all ways. God gives us the invitation to worship him here, but that's meant to really be a springboard into our entire lives offered to God as an act of worship. When we gather and uh, we have corporate singing, for instance, it becomes that offering of praise to God personally that takes place corporately. It was wonderful to have our choir singing really fullness of it for the first time in a long time today, wasn't it? And they so enrich our worship with their voices and often we can find our own voices singing along with them and in partnership with them. That was a joy. Today we have a two-part message, both uh, Pastor Greg and I, and it's fun to get to call him or Pastor, you know, Pastor Greg, and he's going to be presiding over communion with me today. That is a delight in and of itself. Uh, and both of us are going to be presenting part of the message today. Uh, these are topics that could take uh, each individually a full message for sure. They could take several messages. So uh, each message today is really kind of a springboard in these topics uh, that we plan to address this morning. My part of the message will talk about why we worship and sharing Christ and and how our worship is meant to impact our home lives. And this comes out of Ephesians 5, verse 21 through 6, 4. Paul there writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, but that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we look at worship and worship impacting our home life, I think about an experience I had, I believe in 2018. I got to go along with a mission team to North Africa, and we were going and connecting with a number of different mission partners that either we support or are supported by those missionaries we support. 
And visiting those different missionaries in that part of the world uh, who couldn't gather in corporate worship contexts, I was amazed at the joy with which they worship God at home, just within their own families. Many times, it was pushing play on a YouTube praise video with the lyrics there, and they would joyfully sing along. For me, it was a profound experience of realizing that while I take great joy in worshiping God at home and having those experiences with with Beth and the kids, that I wanted to emphasize that to a greater degree within our home. Since that time, every Monday night, we gather for family worship and we sing praise to God, we talk about God's word, and we pray for one another. Those missionaries in North Africa sparked a desire to make sure that worship in our home had a central place. And why we worship God both corporately here but then springboarding that into our home lives is that we want our core relationships to be impacted by our worship of God. You see, as Paul starts this part of the passage, he says, be subject to one another or or, uh, revere one another, submit to one another because of your reverence for Christ. In other words, our mutual submission to Christ and to one another is an act of worship to God. God is the one who gave us the created order of male and female and bringing people into a marriage relationship between husband and wife. Gave us the joy of having children and the honor and and privilege and profound challenge of raising children to know Christ. Submitting to one another then out of a respect or reverence for Christ becomes one of our central acts of worship. Thinking about all that Christ has done for us leads to our response back to him in gratitude and in thanksgiving and wanting to take care of those we have been centrally called into relationship with as a way of honoring God and thanking him. The word submit is not a, a word that is uh, really uh, appreciated in our society now today. Submission is kind of something that is often seen as an older act or it's just not a word that people really like anymore. And yet what it does is bring us into that place of order and reverence for God and the order that he's given us. So when we submit to our husband or our wife, to our parents, to our church leaders, to our civil authorities. What we're doing is offering that submission and reverence ultimately to Christ. This sets the context then for key relationships where it says wives submit to your husbands and and to do that as an act of worship. It's saying that wives are submit to, to submit to their husbands who are the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So what wives are doing is submitting to an act of great love that Christ is calling husbands to. When it says wives submit to their husbands out of reverence for Christ, whenever you submit or honor or revere your husband, you're doing that as a reflection of your worship of Jesus who has given you that husband. For a husband, it says, is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Submission there is defined and qualified by Christ's headship of the church. And what did Christ do for the church? He died for the church. 
So when we think about our worship of God and why we worship, we worship God because of who Christ is as the head of the body, but also as the savior of the body. You see, Christ isn't just head of the body and the husband isn't the head of the wife, just as the controlling center. No, Christ died for the body. He's the head of the body, but he also submitted himself to great suffering and pain in order to save that body. So when we talk about headship and Christ being the head of the church, the husband being the head of the wife, the word head was actually, I mean, it's used today in terms of being a ruler or authority. However, in the Greek, when the word head was originally used metaphorically as it is here, it means origin as in the source or the head of a river. A woman has her origins in man, we are told in Genesis, just as the church has its origin in Christ. So rather than this headship that is power over, it's actually a headship that is a source of great love that is meant to flow from Christ into the husband and then into the wife. Just as Wives are to submit to their husbands. We submit to Christ as an act of worship. But then husbands are called to love their wives as an act of worship to Christ. Remember that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So whenever I'm doing premarital counseling, I love this part because we're in Gen- Ephesians 5 and say, okay, it says wives submit to the husbands and the wife's like, okay, I got I to gotta let him take the lead here sometimes. I don't know about this. Okay, and then we've worked through that a little bit and then I'll get to this part and it says, and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I usually say, so what did Jesus do for the church? And the guy usually in a flat tone says, he died for her? And I say, he died for her. In other words, your husband's meant to sacrifice your life for your wife. That as Christ sacrificed himself for the church, gave himself up for her, husbands are meant to become a living sacrifice, an embodiment of Christ's agape, unconditional love and favor for their wives. Christ gave himself up for the church. And husbands are meant to sacrifice themselves and and love their brides just as Christ loved the church. That type of love is hard. And so it takes the Holy Spirit's filling and loving and sacrificing as an act and expression of worship to God as that is demonstrated in love for your brides, guys. The reason then that it says that, that we're to offer that worship and, and offer love and respect to one another in husband and wife relationships is that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And what was the purpose of Christ doing that? It says to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word to present her her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ's desire to sacrifice himself and give himself for the church is in order to make the church like himself. We are the bride, church, 
the bride of Christ. And Jesus so loves the bride that he was willing to sacrifice himself for her in order to make her holy and blameless, cleansing her, it says, with water through the washing of the word. In Titus 3.5, it says that, that this way, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Christ and his sacrifice and his shed blood on the cross cleanses us from all sin, renewing us and refreshing us so that Christ could ultimately present the church to himself without stain or wrinkle or without blame, blemish, but holy and blameless. Why we worship God and why we seek to submit to one another as an act of worship to God is because Christ was so committed to you, God was so committed to you that he sent Christ to die for you. And because he so cares about you that he's done everything necessary to make you holy and set apart for his purposes. He loves you and cleanses you through his life-giving death and through the waters of baptism, which, which uh, cleanse us from sin so that you are refreshed, pure, made clean, holy and right for the purpose of relationship with him. So husbands love their wives then as an act of worship to God. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies because he who loves his wife loves himself. And they love their wives as their own body, feeding and caring for it. You see, Christ sees the church as a body and as a bride. And he was willing to sacrifice his life for his bride. And he sees us as his own body. And he was willing to, to die then for his body to redeem us and restore us. And therefore, he unites us in loving relationships with one another. Where we care for one another as part of the church, the bride of Christ. And we care for one another as husbands and wives living this life that he's called us. To live. Genesis 2.24, which Paul echoes here, then says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What Christ has done for his bride is to restore the original created order. Husbands and wives joined together, just as now the church, the bride of Christ, is joined to Christ. I love the way it's, he says, this is a great mystery. In the Greek, it is actually, it's a mega mystery. It's a mystery that God would call us into loving relationships. But it's a mystery that as that continues to unfold in loving relationships within the church and loving relationships between a husband and a wife, we experience more and more of the love of Christ. There's been nothing in my own life that has been more central to my own discipleship than my marriage to Beth. In 27 years, this next Friday, you learn a lot about love. You learn a lot about continuing to forgive one another and go on loving one another, even when you've hurt one another, mostly unintentionally. But when we go on loving and we go on receiving love and forgiveness in return, we grow in our love for God, who's given us the gift of marriage relationships and all relationships. Paul says that it's to be about love from husbands to their wives and wives respecting their husbands. A great book, if you've never read it, if you're a husband or a wife, is Emerson Egerich's book, Love and Respect, teaches a lot about marriage relationships. 
But it's not just marriage. Paul goes on to say, children, relate to your parents as an act of worship. Obey your parents as in the Lord, it says. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. Children are meant to honor their parents, to revere them, to allow them to be an authority in their life and allow them to grow up into Christ, to mature in Christ. But this also takes fathers and mothers. But Paul here speaks to fathers relating to their children as an act of worship. It says, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers aren't to exasperate their children. That means, you know, be so hard on them that they give up or they don't know Christ's love reflected through that father. Instead, we're to exhort them or encourage them. Rick Warren once said, uh, that, that exhortation without explanation leads to exasperation. In other words, when we exhort and encourage, but we explain why, then we can build up our children. And parents, it's never too late, and really the, the role never ends. In Joshua twenty four fifteen, it says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And in Proverbs 22, 6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. The joy of disciplining children is about discipling them in the Lord so that they grow up to grow more and more like Jesus. Their parental privilege and honor is a high calling and role, just as marriage is. But all these relationships, whether it's husband and wife, whether it's parents and children, whether it's work relationships or relationships within the church, are to be offered up to God, ultimately as an act of worship to him. So as Greg comes up and continues on the second part of the message this morning, I want you to think about those core relationships that you have as husbands and wives, as children, as parents. And think about how you can increasingly offer that relationship to God as an act of sacrifice and worship to him. Let's invite Greg up to continue. Thanks, Mike. All right. Well, I get to wrap up the book of Ephesians because Paul ends with this conclusion. Uh, in chapter 6, begins in verse 10 very famously talking about the armor of God. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, You may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, and the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I 
will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, my dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and how he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters in love with faith of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Finally, like Paul writes here, this is the last point Paul wants to leave the beloved in the church of Ephesus with. And this is the last part of our Why Worship series. And I think it's appropriate that Paul's reminder at the beginning is to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Not yours, but God's. And if you actually go back to the very first chapter and first few verses of Ephesians, Paul has already encouraged the church to do the same things. He tells them to rely on God's mighty power in verse 19 of chapter 1. Paul has bookended the book, uh, the, the letter to the Ephesians with this idea. This is the bread holding the meat of the sandwich of Ephesians together, if you will. So what's important about this armor of God that Paul is wanting to conclude the letter with and to leave the, the church in Ephesus with and to leave us with today? What's important about the armor? Why is this the last thing? I think it reminds us, most importantly, that when we come to worship, we are reminded for what we stand against, we are reminded to what we stand with, and we are reminded for what we stand for. So what we stand against, Paul reminds us that we stand against not flesh and blood, not against people, not against our neighbors, not against individuals. We stand against spiritual forces, the dark powers of the world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What would it look like then if we didn't wage war or fight against people? What if we took, what would it look like if we took our stand against dark powers and spiritual forces? How do we make the forces the focus of our stand and what we're fighting against rather than people? How do we stand against sin without making individuals the target of our fight? How do we make a stand against homelessness without being aggressive towards those to our homeless neighbors? How do we make a stand against sickness and disease without making those afflicted the focus of our battles? How do we stand against racial injustice without making neighbors and friends those who we're standing against? How do we stand against pornography and sexual exploitation without making those who suffer because of it collateral damage in our fight? How do we stand against these things without making flesh and blood the focus of our fight? We must realize that this is first and foremost a spiritual fight, like Paul says. It's not against flesh and blood. It is against the spiritual and the dark forces. And because of that, we need to stand in God's mighty power, not our own, not our own ideas, not our own ideals and wishes and dreams, but what Paul has wrote through the whole book of Ephesians and encouraged the church in Ephesus to do. And like Mike was just talking about how we live our lives as a spirit, as a family, and how that works itself out in our message to everybody. That's how we make a stand against these spiritual forces. 
Not fighting against individuals or people or people that we might disagree with, but making a stand through the power that God has given us, making a stand for the gospel. We stand because of what God has already done for us and through us. And we stand together as a body, as a church, as a unit, united together, supporting each other. So that's what we stand against. What do we stand with? How do we stand up? Paul gives us this list of the armor of God. We need to put on this armor of God. You don't want to go into a battle unprepared. You don't want to go into a situation wearing the wrong kind of dress or uniform. Um, I'm going to give you a little insight into my mind and my life. Pastors can sometimes have like pastor nightmares or pastor dreams. I don't know if you've had a nightmare associated with your career, but one of mine that I've had a few times is that I realize with very short notice that I've been invited to speak somewhere. And so then I arrive at that place to speak in this dream and I show up and I suddenly forget everything I've been asked to speak. And I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And I'm like, well, I got to go out on stage. And I go out on stage. And it's true that the default idea of uh, a nightmare happens. I'm suddenly without clothes. I am wholly unprepared to give the message in that dream. And I wake up totally scared and afraid. It's a pastor nightmare. Paul doesn't want us to be like that. He doesn't want the Ephesians to stand up and to make this stand without clothing and without the proper fitment for what they're going into. So he gives this list of the armor of God. Now what's interesting, at the time that Paul is writing this, he's under house arrest. And the way house arrest worked in the Roman times was that you were chained to your house. Well, you were also probably chained to a Roman legionnaire. So as Paul is writing out this message, there is somebody with armor right next to him. One of uh, the commentaries I read by Alexander McLaren, he says this in his commentary. He says, the Roman legionary to whom Paul was chained here sits all unconsciously for his portrait, every detail of which is pressed by Paul into the service of his vivid imagination. The virtues and graces of Christian character, which are the armor of light, are suggested to the apostle by the weapon which the soldier by his side wore. The vulgarest and most murderous implements assume a new character when looked upon with the eyes of a poet and a Christian. So Paul is taking the image that he sees before him that is literally chained to him and turns them into an image for what we can do as people, as believers, to stand up against these spiritual forces, not prepared like the Roman legionnaire is to fight against people and individuals and outside forces and people, but against the spiritual forces. So Paul brings up these, these images of what, uh, what a soldier, what a legionnaire might, might wear. And fun fact, a lot of these images are also pulled from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 52, and Isaiah 59 feature references to these similar pieces of equipment. First of all, Paul says the belt of truth. And I think it's appropriate that Paul says that the first element is a belt and that it's the truth. Without the truth of the gospel tied firmly around us, most of the rest of this armor is just going to fall off. We need to have our, 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 the truth is what holds it together. And everything about the armor comes together because of truth. 
And without our feet firmly planted in the truth of the gospel, this armor is not going to be effective. Secondly, he says that we need to take on the breastplate of righteousness. This is, again, not our ideas of what righteousness is, how we feel like we should live a right life. This is God's righteousness given to us. This is when, when God steps in because no one else will. This is God's right action, true justice, and God's noble, noble character that we put on ourselves to protect our most vital of organs, our heart. And then if we don't live with God's righteousness around us, those flaming arrows are going to come after our heart. He says we need to have our feet fitted with the gospel of peace. Our feet are fitted with the gospel of peace so that we can carry the message of peace to others. We're not fitted to run to the front lines and to start throwing spears and flailing our swords around, but we're fitted to carry the message of peace, of God's victory, that God is king and Jesus sits on the throne. We are carrying peace, not conflict. We are carrying a message of victory, not terms of surrender. And sure, as we're doing that, we might find conflict. We're going to run into persecution, but we're not to carry that conflict with us. We are to carry the message of peace with God and peace with our neighbors. Paul says we need to take up the shield of faith. And in Greek, the the word for shield here is not kind of that small round shield you might be familiar with. Paul specifically uses the Greek word for that giant towering body length rectangular shield that you might have seen in movies or elsewhere. One of my favorite movies is the movie Gladiator. And in the beginning of the movie Gladiator, there's this huge battle of, of the Roman legion with this European tribe. And at one point, as the Roman legionnaires are advancing on the tribe, the tribe shoots this vol- giant volley of arrows. And what does the Roman legion do? Well, there's one line, and they kneel down, and they put their shields on the ground. And there's a second line, and they step behind those guys, and they hold their shields above that first line. And all those arrows come down, and they just hit the shields. Nothing hits the legionnaires who are under the shields. Those shields not only are giant to protect the whole body, but when used together as a team, as a unit, they can each protect the other from those arrows that are coming to harm them. It's the shield of faith because our devotion to faith and our loyalty to Christ and to God and the gospel can protect us from many arrows and can extinguish those flaming arrows. And when we work together as a team, nothing can get through to us. When we stand together and we hold our shields, not just for ourselves, but for the protection of others around us, reminding them of our faith and the power of our faith and what we stand in. Paul also says to take the helmet of salvation. Like the breastplate protects essential organs, so does the helmet. Can't do much without your noggin intact. The helmet of salvation is the knowledge and reminder of our salvation, of our adoption into the family, and that God protects us. It is God's mark upon our head. Almost like what John writes in Revelation, that those who have the seal on their head are not to be harmed because they are the servants of God. Paul also says to take up the sword of the Spirit. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the message and the word that the word God wants all creation to hear. We must remember that we are carrying the gospel of peace. 
and not a gospel of violence. Uh, Lynn Kohik, another commentary I I read, said, The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. It is most clearly spoken in the cross, as Paul says earlier in Ephesians. The message of the beloved one, whose death and resurrection is our peace, the gospel which cuts through darkness. And the other element, I think, of the armor of God that we might overlook is prayer. In verse 18, Paul says to keep on praying. This is an essential part of the armor. If we haven't figured it out yet, this armor isn't ours. It's God's. And when we pray, we cry out to God for what we can't do on our own. We cry out to God for what he can do only because we are limited in our strength and our capabilities and our location. Prayer reminds us that the battle is beyond us and is greater than us. We are only seeing one small part of the battle, but there is a larger battle going on out there. There are other Christians who are closer to the front line than we may ever feel. We pray because we know that there are forces beyond us at work. There are fellow brothers and sisters in the faith under greater attack than we are. But as a body, we can pray that all members can withstand the flaming arrows. Finally, what we stand for. Paul says basically that we stand for this gospel that he desires to fearlessly make known regardless of our circumstances. Connected to that, Paul almost comically says that he's an ambassador in chains for the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been an ambassador. But I know ambassadors have to go before kings and rulers of nations. And think about Paul in this state as a prisoner chained up. He looks pretty ragged. He's chained to a legionnaire. And those chains are so heavy that they've probably wore sores into his body, into his wrists, or into his feet. And can you imagine somebody trying to go before a king or queen in that state as an ambassador? Hey, look at me. I'm totally prepared to do this. Paul isn't. He's malnourished. He's ragged. He's weighed down by chains and slowed by those wounds. This is not the sight of an earthly ambassador. But Paul knows he's not an ambassador for anything on the earth. He is an ambassador for Christ. He is an ambassador for the spiritual realm and the kingdom of God. And as he has often reminded his readers in other letters, what you see is not what you get. You can't judge a book by its cover. And what may seem foolish in the world's sight is actually something completely different. The more and more that we put on Jesus, that we take on this armor of God, the more we might actually end up starting to look like Jesus. Not just in how we act, but sometimes in how we actually look. Finally, the early church father, Jerome, writes this about the armor of God. He says, From what we read of the Lord our Savior throughout the scriptures, it is manifestly clear that the whole armor of Christ is the Savior himself. It is he whom we are asked to put on. It is the It is one and the same thing to say, put on the whole armor of God and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our belt is truth and our breastplate is righteousness. The Savior is also called both truth and righteousness. So no one can doubt that he himself is that very belt and breastplate. On this principle, he is also to be understood as the preparation of the gospel of peace. He himself is the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. He is the sword of the spirit because he is the word of God living and efficacious. 
the utterance of which is stronger than any helmet and sharp on both sides. When we take on this armor of God, when we try to make the stand against the devil's schemes and the flaming arrows, we take on Jesus. It is not our power that we stand. It is not by any power that we can find on earth that we stand. It is not by any weapon or thing that we think can protect us here on earth that we stand. We stand only in the mighty power of Jesus and God. So why, why worship? Why do we talk about this in worship? Friends, this is why we are here. We are here to be reminded of what we stand against, those spiritual forces that Paul mentions. What do we stand with? The armor of God alone. And what do we stand for? The gospel. Jesus. And when we come to worship, that's what we need to hear. That's what we need to be reminded of so that when we go out from here, we are ready, like Paul says, to stand. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this book, for this letter to the Ephesians. I thank you for Paul's work in planning this church and for writing to encouragement that it may be an encouragement to us today. I pray that the words we heard today, both from Pastor Mike and myself, would would go deep into our hearts and our minds. And that as we go out from here, we will be encouraged in new ways to to live our lives in, in families and to live our lives with each other's, and to know that as we go, we stand not on our own might and our own power, but through your power and your mighty strength and your armor and in Jesus, whom we worship. I ask this all in your name. Amen.
Amen.